or a blind person may think about, I don't know, sections in a very different way to a sighted person. Or maybe they'd think about it in the same way. It's just that no one's ever actually had those conversations. Fitting and misfitting. If you're designing to enable people not to misfit. Start from difference rather than add difference. We're meeting them at the friend's meeting house, a non-commercial working space. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hi. So I'll start? Yes, okay. My name's Joss Boys. I've been working in the field of architecture in a very wide-ranging way for, I guess, 50 years in that I studied architecture in the 1970s and 80s and uh, was very involved in some feminist architecture work at that time through a practice called Matrix. So we were really interested in how you might understand how space was gendered at a time when that wasn't, it just wasn't even up for discussion as something that you could talk about. And since then I've worked um, in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different places. And uh, as a single parent, I was, you know, worked as a, a teacher in architecture schools so that I was earning a proper living. But mainly I've freelanced and done a variety of different things, including writing and um, uh, different sorts of kind of community-based practice. And with Zoe, who will introduce herself to... Um, over 10 years ago, we set up something that at that time was called um, Architecture Inside Out, with the idea that disability access and inclusion was still really badly dealt with within architectural education and practice, and that by using the creativity of disabled artists, we could really provoke new ways of working that were both very subversive but also very enjoyable. Um, and hi, I'm Zoe Partington, and um, I suppose I I came into architecture probably 25, 30 years ago, as I did. Um, I studied a postgraduate diploma in the history of art design, architecture, and philosophy. And one of the reasons for doing that was I'd, I'd done a qualification before, which was which was very practical, but the, the history and the context, lots of things were missing from that, which I really wanted to know about. Um, so I did this um, the sort of heritage and history side to find out more. And as part of that, um, I suppose as a disabled person and as a person with sight loss, I began to realise there was lots of gaps in the way that I was being taught, but also in the way that things were designed or developed and I didn't see any role models or any blind or partial sighted people or female blind or partial sighted people studying or developing architecture. Um, so I sort of became, in, in a way, accidentally quite fascinated by it. 
I'd always done creative things as an artist, but I then moved into working in a very structured way um, with organisations in London, auditing and creating guidance around um, inclusive architecture, inclusive design, built spaces, buildings. And it, it very much came in line with the Disability Discrimination Act at the time. And because of that, I began to realise that people have been doing this for quite a long time and not much was changing. So I again began to challenge it and question it. And maybe because I was an artist or got a slightly different background to some of the access auditors and specialists I worked with, and all the people I worked with weren't disabled people as well, so that was also quite interesting. So I began to have lots of questions and look at it in a very different way. Um, and then, yes, then we met, didn't we, to help develop set up architecture inside out which was really about to look at how disabled artists may be able to influence changes in built environment in spaces um, and again to critically map things and to look at things in very different ways I suppose we've been on that 10-year journey haven't we trying to develop how how we continue to embed that type of approach which is more sort of moving away isn't it from guidance is important but it doesn't answer everything and guidance changes as things change and society moves and people's opinions um, and the guidance ask... is very technical and functional and yes. clinical it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's become, not about people is it really yeah. it's become this thing which, which stands for kind of disabled people as a, uh, a category yes. yeah. just not very uh, and you know coming from architectural practice and education, the whole atmosphere um, of it being kind of boring, politically correct, something you do at the end of your studies. And it's never evaluated with disabled people that Mm. use the space, or spatially how that might work or not work. Rebecca? Yes. Sorry, one of the artists that we... (laughs) work with years ago actually what you say is quite true like I have the feeling that in architecture school we're just designing (laughs) shapes and then when we go into offices or work then it became like okay we have norms and we have to fulfill some process but we actually don't think about it and during architecture studies we don't think about it or it's never open this topic somehow there's a really interesting disability studies scholar called Jay Dormarge there's a lot of really exciting work in disability studies that doesn't really get into architectural educational Mm. practice and he calls it retrofitting so there's this very odd thing which is you learn to design for quote unquote normal people and then you add on stuff or you take out normal or you take out or you so it's a kind of it's 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 built in as an afterthought, and, and I certainly it sounds like your experience is the same. When yes. you get taught design, that's exactly what's assumed. Yeah. It's like not that important. It's something you can deal with when you when you go into practice. It's a rather dull subject that you just need to know, like you need to know fire regulations. Mm-hmm. Completely dehumanising. Yeah, because you start with the noise part, or you start with the modulor, yeah, exactly. or you start with all these. Like Normative, bodies. You get all these ergonomic figures that uh, are themselves quite problematic where they came from, and there's still, I think, really important histories to be written about kind of the, the development of idea of notions of ideals or norms or averages. Mm-hmm. And there's there's real connections between those ergonomic studies and eugenics. I mean, there are real connections about trying to have this kind mm-hmm. of normal dash ideal type, yeah. which are kind yeah. of not they're not achievable. There is none of us are average. Well, with disordinary architecture, we're trying to look at how 
how you really embed it um, as if it's in somebody's DNA about how they then bring that into everything that they do. Not necessarily in a disability-specific way. It's not about that, but it's about understanding the varieties of people that may use a space or an environment um, and understanding how you might work with a disabled person to look at it in a completely different way that actually might be better but it's, it takes quite a long time doesn't it to get people to think in that way and I think now we've started to practice or we've used workshops in quite interesting ways and you can begin to see the change I think in some of those students that we've been working with I think also there's something else that's happening that younger people are now exposed to more disabled people because as things get more accessible more disabled people become visible so people that have been isolated are now not so isolated. So people are um, beginning to question, aren't they, and challenge what what is this norm and yeah. how might we rethink about it or and I do, address I, it differently. Yeah, and I do think that, you know, things like gender fluidity are kind of moved to being much more relaxed about gender binaries and even you know gay lesbian type binaries just to get much more relaxed about how fluid our identities and, and kind of ways of being in the world are taking that into disability and impairment for for younger people who find that much more just the way of thinking about things yeah. it, it, it's kind of easier it, it just disability when we start talking about disability in that way is something that's quite that's very variable and, and creatively interesting in that variety. I think they get it a bit more. Do you think this, the system that more disabled people enter the mainstream educational system has changed the notion of normality a bit? Again, it has for children and young people. Whether it has for the teachers, I'm not so sure. The mainstream school system is still very, um, very difficult for disabled people to flourish within it if the right setup isn't in place and the right framework. But there is, there is a framework and there is legislation and there is law. Um, there's like assistants or like teachers are trained and... You, you'd hope that, yeah. <laughs> Ideally, yes, but that, sometimes they're still not trained to, in a way that they should be to make sure that the disabled person isn't still the object of everything that's not working because of that person. Mm-hmm. And it's still very important to try and get the schools to, to understand how to you know, how to change the system and the framework, that that's the issue, that's where the barriers are, not within that individual disabled person that comes into that mainstream school. I mean, we talk about this within architecture, don't we, when we talk to, and I, and I have to say, it's a lot of male architects that I have been talking to recently will talk about designing environments and that we have to design these environments for the masses because that's how we make things work. And we keep having these discussions around that um, able-bodied people can survive in any terrain in a way. So actually as a designer, um, if you create not a very good design, non-disabled people can still use that building and that space. They might not like it, but you're definitely excluding disabled people. And you should be thinking about you know, the 6%, the 8%, the 10%. Because if you get that right and you work to make sure that those people can access it, and it's the same in education in the schools, mm-hmm. then it will work for everybody and it would actually be better for everybody. But really trying to push that nugget and get people to understand that can still be quite difficult, I think. And people will argue for hours about yeah. it, 
And I'm thinking it's not that hard a sort of uh, model to understand. I agree, and it is part of the thing about the, uh, the Disordinary Architecture Project is to try and think of ways, if you, if you argue that you should start from difference rather than add difference on at the end as a kind of artificial thing, yeah, yeah. is what does that mean in terms of the kinds of teaching that you do, the kinds of activities that you do, the workshops, how it affects how mm-hmm. people literally learn the subject. Again, not just you need to know this about disabled people, but how you think about the world and, and mm-hmm. your place and the place of other people in it. Um, and some of the language that I use, again, from disability studies is around the idea of fitting and misfitting rather mm-hmm. than you know able-bodied and disabled, that different sorts of mm-hmm. environments act in different ways, different contexts. It's always relational. It's always about who you're with, what the space is like, mm. what the attitudes are like. All those things come together in a relational way to disable or enable particular groups of people and not others. And because we have a society that goes on discriminating against disabled people... Which is the social that, model of disability. Yeah, it is, it's, well, it is the social model, but I think in a way there's been a... The social model is still really important and one of the things... And as Zoe does this a lot, one of the things we do is explain the social model, which a lot of people don't know. Mm. But a lot of there's contemporary work uh, by people like Alison Kafer, who are look who talk more about a, what they call a relational model, so that you're not the social model. I think is really important the idea that it is the relationship between disabled people and the societies and what, how societies frame it. Yeah. But the relational model tends to say that's very dynamic, that depends on all sorts of things at once, not just disability, but gender, race, class, all those things, and that it is, it's specific and it's situated, so you need to understand what's going on there. And that if you actually design for mis... If you think about misfitting as a very creative thing, mm-hmm. even though often it's... You know, something that's in fo- you know forced upon mm. disabled people. But if you think of it as a creative thing, if you're designing to enable people not to misfit, then that's that's a real creative generator. That's mm. not a problem. That's not a kind of leftover. It's what you start from. Yeah. So you don't you don't get into this numbers game like it's not very important because there aren't many people who use a wheelchair. Mm. You you get into what's the neuro and biodiversity, the richness of it, the value of it in our world and how does that if you think about those sorts of ways of existing then how do you really support those yeah and I, I think that's the thing it, because what it does it um and this is why we want obviously a lot more disabled people to be training in architecture or visibly training in architecture and design and then getting employed in the architectural sector because uh, that's the other issue isn't it about that transfer from education then into work um, is that this whole flip side that if a disabled person is designing and developing and controlling it, um, it aesthetically it just becomes a very different way of designing those spaces and thinking about those spaces. A very small thing sometimes can actually change it. But it's also about people realising that disabled people aren't just wheelchair users. There's a huge spectrum of disabled people um, with different impairments. And how do we get people to open up to think this is much bigger than just people with mobility impairments or wheelchair users. It's still incredibly valid, but it is, it's much wider than that. And that means more people in society have access and need to make sure that it's right, really. One thing I really liked in the phone call we did before is the shift from, 
feminism or from your feminist practice matrix, one of the discussions you had there that you said disabled studies had like a language already prepared for difference compared to feminism that at that time didn't have that language. I think that what we do is, is a form of feminist practice, but I don't think that's a way we ever talk about it. And that's partly because it's almost like you can go beyond some of the things that we got very caught up in in the 70s and the 80s. The things that were really important were to being able to just work out what it meant to say that space was gendered or racialized or queered or, you know, all those things, or disabling. You know, there was a kind of interest in that. But for me, uh, it may be different for Zoe, I think there's been some really fantastic stuff by contemporary disability studies scholars and disability uh, disabled activists and artists which is around the idea that that we're all after the same thing it is all about you know the expression is transformative social spatial and material justice and the notion of justice rather than access and inclusion for me is a really powerful one because it does include power and if you start talking about spatial justice, spatial and material justice, if you're thinking particularly about architecture. I feel like that's, that, that, it's not so much that you have feminism and then you add intersectionality. It is that you have a way of working which brings together feminists and disability scholars and you know, queer scholars. It's, it's like it's, it's, it's all being interested in the same end. And then what you have to do in order to get there is exactly what Zoe was talking about, I think, which is about what are the everyday practices and spaces and relationships that make things gendered or make them uh, discriminate against particular people, dis- disable particular people. And that, that's across the board. You know, you can't just say, oh, well, women... You know, certain things will happen to certain sorts of women to do with their place in society. But once you start cross-cutting it with impairment with sexuality, with race. It's kind of, it feels to me like it's better to look at the practices and see what they're doing to all of us, not to say, I'm a feminist or I'm a, I'm, I, I'm no, a queer I, scholar. I, or... No, I agree, and I think, um, because what, what, with the social model of disability and the thinking in the 70s, what was really fascinating was to really start to look at how um, disabled people impairment groups were segregated into each impairment group so people were working separately and against each other and that was convenient for other people because that meant that, that you know, those minorities couldn't work as a majority to change things and then I think people began to realise disabled people began to realise that it was not a useful way forward for disabled people but to come together as a bigger group was going to give people more power and be more informative to other people and I think, again, somewhere along the line, I think for some disabled people, they've, they've sort of got trapped in that and not thought about the next stage, about how do we also then include other people that may be finding that you know, they're dealing with barriers or missed opportunities for different reasons, but in a very similar way. How do we work together to try and remove them much faster and with more majority, really? And I think that's when it becomes quite interesting and you, you really do start to, which I think you do see in young people because they are having much more conversations about this than I ever did as a younger person. And I, I think, um, and we know that's a really, you know, it, it does, it creates better environments for everybody. Like you say, that social justice, those spaces are for everybody. They're not just for one set of people. Um, 
which some obviously are at the moment. But yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. And I think the other thing about it is that, you know, again, just talking about it in the more kind of the kind of theoretical frameworks that are being developed is that it's, uh, and within disability activism and scholarship as well as art practice, is that part of it is also accepting that there isn't kind of a solution. It isn't like, well, all you need to do is this and then it will be wonderful for women or it will be wonderful for disabled people. It is that whatever you do, it's going to go on being complex and contradictory and it's never going to work for everybody and that what you're trying to do is just move towards it being better for the most disadvantaged people and that it is something that can only be... You, you do it, yes. You do it, it doesn't kind of stop. It doesn't, doesn't stop. stop. I think that's yeah. the thing, isn't it? And um, one package is just not going to suit everybody, and it and it doesn't fix it for even those individuals. It's about how do you keep developing it. I think you're accepting that. You're bringing that into it and letting it just be part of what you do, yeah. and not yeah. be uh, not be kind of worried that you're going to end up with 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 contradictions in what yes. suits people yeah. really, or you try and resolve them. You know, you do. Always trying to resolve them. Mm. So, as we already heard in our recordings, we are in this very lively place here. (laughs) (laughs) You said you you regularly meet here. When you asked about where we meet and where whether we have an office and all that, we don't have an office. We're very much an informal platform, and I think even when we get more. Uh, consolidated which is what we're in the process of doing now we still don't need an office because people are based around the country Um, and at the moment this particular road the Euston Road which runs uh, west-east across this top half of London of central London is a really good kind of zone for us because we're doing stuff at the British Library we're doing stuff at the Bartlett School of Architecture, stations that uh, Zoe and other colleagues come into, other artists come into at Euston, King's Cross, St Pancras, Marylebone. Mm. They're all on that road. So we find that there are also quite a lot of really interesting public buildings where we have our meetings. So there's uh, a GP's place that we go to because it yes. has a public cafe. Yeah. And there's this, the Quaker's friend's house. What I like about the Quaker building is that it's quite old-fashioned. It's very open. It's not somewhere where you have to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. The Quakers are definitely people who, in their own way, have believed in social, spatial, material justice for a very long time. You know, just people do come and sit here because it's quiet, it's public, nobody's going to send them away. We come, usually, because it's, it does have quiet places. Uh, it turns out that what I thought was a quiet place today <laughs> isn't a quiet place. You know. Do you want to talk about a bit the Architecture Beyond Side project? Mm-hmm. project, which is what you do in the audio tour t- tonight at the Bartlett School and yeah. how you yeah how you bring your ideas into this project how you bring them forward yeah I mean the architecture beyond site project has come out of a, a relationship with Bartlett hasn't it that we've been well and Joss has definitely been developing for quite some time so it's come out of um, having more talks um, representation for disabled people coming to talk about the work that they do with architecture students and design students 
not just at the Bartlett, but at other architecture schools as well. The dean, Alan Penn, at the Bartlett School of Architecture was also very interested because he'd met a blind architect and he began to think particularly about architecture, about how it's a very, or maybe it's taught in a very visual way, and he started to question that, didn't he really, Alan? And then came to Disordinary Architecture to look at how we might address some of that by making opportunities for blind and partially sighted people to be part of, of, um, of the student intake, so to be undergraduates and to be... And it can be at any level, it's not necessarily only at one level. So this is really a big start, a big journey to try and change practices and to look at how that's possible. Um, we did a three-day three pilot course, didn't we, last year? We tried to look at how the course or modules might be shaped, who within those structures that exist within the universities need to get involved to begin to unpick their thinking. Last year was interesting because suddenly blind and people were visible within that architecture school. And very, very quickly, people could begin to see how you might do things in a different way, you know, purely because maybe four guide dog users would turn up to the project, or, or a blind person may think about, I don't know, um, sections in a very different way to a sighted person, or maybe they'd think about it in the same way, it's just that no one's ever actually had those conversations. And slightly tweaking things could make that possible, and I think that was... That was really interesting, wasn't it, for us? What are the methods you're working with? You were talking about the alternative or like more open, like different drawing or model building methods that you develop for those workshops. One of the things I think was really valuable about this initial three-day workshop was that it was a mixture of um, blind and partially sighted artists, architects, uh, Mandy, who working with us, who's a writer, as well as sighted architecture students and tutors. And so in working together, doing a kind of very quick one-day design project, it was really uh, enlightening to see the variety of ways in which people shared how you map a build a space, how you represent it, and how you communicate what you've done. The artist showed us techniques, for example, of um, sewing or how easy it is to make a tactile line by just using a rubber mat. So... One group uh, shared their drawings where they were sketching on one side on the mat and then flipping it over so it made a tactile edge. So you could very quickly share a sketch. Um, Carlos Pereira, who was the blind architect who came from Portugal to work with us, showed how he cut and folded card in really interesting ways. So he did a kind of three-dimensional model making. Yeah. You could see him imagining what the space would be like. And he also talked about how he does site visits which was really interesting because it was about how you use touch and a very slow engagement with the place with the smell and the atmosphere so his site visits take two or three days of just really concentrated engagement with the space and that felt like a really beautiful thing to do that felt like something that'd be really nice for all architecture students to do to me Mandy and uh, Charlotte who she was working with they did a kind of performative they performed the site so they were performing what they imagined designing in it and they were walking around it as if what they built was there and talking about it. Uh, Zoe, you and you also did a, some audio description. We talked about whether you could design a building just by using words. Yeah. You could could yeah. you do it? If you could describe it well enough so somebody could draw it up. And there's kind of an idea, well, if you can't you know, do the CAD stuff, then you can't do it. But in fact, there's two things about that. One is lots of very famous architects... They just have the concept and they have other people who draw it up for them. 
And I think the other thing is, with the way that kind of online drawing is developing... Uh, so, example, we found somebody who's, who's worked for Richard Rogers, who indeed has sight loss and has never really told anybody. She's mm. worked her way through architecture school, she's partially sighted, and mm. she's worked for very high-powered practices, and yes, she yeah. finds that the computer-based you know, parametrics and that sort of thing really works for her, with her particular yes. uh, impairment. So it feels like there are a range of methods that allow you to... Yeah. And, and I think that's been the important thing, isn't it, about how you then translate. So if someone has an incredibly uh, good idea or approach to something, how that's developed, I'm not sure it matters, but then... It's how you translate it, isn't it, to other people around you um, to make it work, really. And that, that was something that I think came out quite well last year. Um, and then also you were saying about the, talking about audio description. We know when we've used audio description with students that people begin to look at space much more and they observe it more and they begin to see things that they've always walked past and missed. And just through changing literally from visual sketching or to using the computer they suddenly have to um, I don't know, the space becomes more real somehow and they engage with it and I think that's important for everybody, not just for blind or partially sighted people and that's when I think it becomes more interesting because it, it isn't about blind people at that point it's about communication, it's about observing it's about um, it's just about real issues, isn't it? That you're there as a person designing for other people. Yeah. It's really about like understanding in which kind of space you are and yeah. how people yeah. use it. Yeah. And how and now I think kind of orthographic drawing, you, you you begin to realize how much it leaves out. How much because you can't. How do you describe smell in orthographic yeah. drawing? You don't. And how do you? Um, and, and ergonomic drawings too. I, I did a very brief project with the Glasgow School of Art with first-year students there where they did start with ergonomic drawings and then we looked at what the limitations were and they began to do drawings of the experience of being uh, having an impairment in different situations and immediately saw that they couldn't really represent the things that mattered. They couldn't, if they were, if they were representing somebody who was partially sighted, then they couldn't capture, you know, navigating by sound or they didn't have a mechanism for... The things that really counted. So that became an exciting thing about how they might extend the ways in which they observe, engage, map, draw space. You work with a lot of different artists, Jules told us already. Maybe you describe a bit about your network. Well, uh, since the 70s and since the social model of disability, um, there's been a um, development of... uh, disabled artists having the opportunities and the voices and funding really to develop their practice and that's grown um, a lot um, around 2012 uh, just before then we started working as architecture inside out but around 2012 with the Paralympics and the Cultural Olympia programme um, because opportunities have opened and people are actually listening and engaging and pushing funding to disabled artists um, a lot of those artists went off didn't they doing a lot of other projects live real projects which was fantastic um, and it's now we're really beginning to work those people have been away and developed their practice quite a lot and a lot of those people are now coming back and working with us and um, you know we've kept in touch with those people as they've been developing their practice in different ways and in different countries and with different people and um, those I think those people now have um, I don't know, really begun to understand about 
architecture, built environment space. They're very aware of mapping spaces, using their creative techniques to do that. So that might be using drawing um, or illustration to map spaces, but to have a discussion and engagement about it. It might be using binaural sound. So we work with Joseph Young quite a lot. He uses... What with, he'll work around mapping and thinking about the spaces through the sounds that you hear in those spaces and that binaural sound. So it, it seems like it's real, that you're actually there. And it just develops really good dialogue and good conversations. And I think as some of the other artists we've worked with, they've been working in the architecture schools, they've been listening to the type of approaches the tutors and the students are using. They're beginning to see where the gaps are. So they're developing their practice in different ways. So they're much richer than, say, 10 years ago, I think, when we started, isn't it, Joss? And it's one thing me and Joss have been talking about, and it's trying to get funding so that we can... um, Because through some of the projects, we've worked with disabled artists and architects and brought them together to work in teams, only small teams, a sort of four, sort of two architects and two disabled artists to develop live projects. Um, And it's then beginning to understand... You know, artists have a different language to architects and maybe designers... But if you can begin to understand the language between you, you can just begin to make better decisions about how you might create something. And I think one of the things I've really observed is that it is about that collaboration. So me as a disabled artist, you know, I might have an opinion and a way of doing things. But working with an architect, and if the two of you can reflect and develop your practice together, then the outcome is much better for both of you, really. And that's been... We've had chance, haven't we, I think, to be able to develop that. And now we're trying to capture it. And just you can probably talk about, because we're capturing it a lot more, aren't we, to try and understand what works, what doesn't work, what needs developing further. And I think it's interesting to, to hear from us that you're always learning somehow because we have the feeling that actually through all the interviews and input we had, it's always about collaboration somehow. And how do you... Like when you create those space where the students and the artists can work together, I think we were quite interested about the infrastructure and you talked about the snowballing effect, like that actually in order to make this space, you need fundings, you need a good network of people that are engaged with it and maybe you can tell us a bit more about it and about like how broad you are, like you're not London-centric somehow, but somehow... You've been working in many, many universities and you have artists from everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think the... So with the network of disabled artists, what's been fantastic for me about that is that, as Zoe mentioned, that people who were involved in the very early days, when we said we want to get this going again, you know, really seriously, they were everybody, pretty well everybody was like, yay, we, we want to do this, we want to do this again. And then... Part of that is obviously beginning to expand those net- networks. So, for example, in the Manchester situation, our aim is to enable artists who haven't worked with us before to uh, try it out, to see whether they like, they want to work this way. Mm-hmm. And then we've had a core group. Well, it's been an expanding core group of, of educators and practitioners who, who really are interested. You know, they, they come to us and they're really interested in doing this and they're really interested in co-design. So... And that core group expands. We often have events where we invite other people in. We've got students who've been involved in earlier projects who then come and help on other projects. Um, there's somebody who runs first year now at the University of Brighton who's just worked with Rachel 
Gadsden, who's one of the artists uh, from Disordinary. She does many other things as well. And that's somebody who was a student on one of the very first projects we did, yeah. which was called Sense of Place, which was about students learning to talk about buildings in a way where they were describing them to blind and visually impaired people. So they were really observing properly and at the same time uh, they were learning a lot about what it is that blind and visually impaired people already know. So having had that experience, she's now in this different position and she's immediately saying, we really, I want to do more of that. So it's just very, it's kind of that snowballing, I think, is good. We, we also, we're getting quite a lot of, we're beginning to get more work internationally. Um, oh, definitely, yes. Copenhagen, we've yeah. been doing some stuff with the British Council in... Uh, Italy and in Armenia. Armenia. Um, uh, so we're beginning to look at other places for funding and other ways of organising. And I think longer term, I've been travelling a lot this summer and met some really interesting disabled artists. So longer term, the aim would be to work internationally also with artists based in those places to kind of extend that way as well. So there's a lot of possibilities Yes, yeah. and I think one of the, I mean, the funding it and all of that is quite hard work because it's still, it's still an area that we have to fight quite hard to get change to happen. And, you know, money doesn't just appear, does it? It's very much about trying to, you know, work with organisations like Arts Council England to encourage them to fund the processes because there's a lot of learning going on, a lot of development for those artists. Um, to go and work in professional practice, really, I think that's the interesting bit, isn't it? and to develop their careers and develop their opportunities as well. Uh, it's also working with the universities who are quite supportive, aren't they, with different um, trust funds and things connected to those that look at research and methodology. So it's about all of those, those ways of doing things as well. I mean, we have noticed that we still will be asked, we'll be, people will want to commission us to do projects, but often it's still so badly funded that we're just not prepared really to to underpay disabled artists to work on those projects and that's still there isn't it that we really have to push to make sure that people are paid properly as professionals Um, it's not just about disabled artists you know sort of being available anytime to give their opinion for free it is about often happens to disabled people doesn't it yeah just Mm -hmm. it's assumed that you don't you're not doing anything so you can yes so you can volunteer so that that's really important to us about how we keep the integrity of that um, at the core as well and I do, I, I really want to the Bartlett School of Architecture at University College London has been a fantastic several people there like Alan Penn, like Barbara Penner have been really um, uh, Emily Stone, have been incredibly supportive and they have been funding, we've both had research grants from them and we've had this largish funding, you know proper amount of funding for the Architecture Beyond Site project so that's been really good. And I'm currently working with um, an architectural practice that are really interested in, in developing a kind of series of related activities and where we're negotiating whether they'll fund that as part of their practice activities. Um, so those are the sorts of things I think we'd be looking for longer term to move away from just having to apply for different sorts of grants and actually getting different sorts of sponsorship yes, yeah. uh, and more long-term embedded funds. Yeah. And we're, we're on that cusp, really. It turned out not to be so quiet. <laughs> it's it's it quiet when you go. It was really quiet because this Rubenna's conference, whatever it is, obviously um, <laughs> well, started. Do you work with public funding mostly or do you also collaborate with private enterprises? 
the this architecture practice uh, is the first, I would say, the first private, mm. you know, commercial funding. Uh, I don't know what the situation is with you, but here a lot of architectural practices just don't have, you know, their profit margins are pretty small. This particular practice is not in that situation, but um, they really don't. There are various practices who they were involved in the early days and they still have a real interest in what we do but they don't really have any money and I find that when we get asked to do you know continuing professional development type work it's almost invariably um, a lunchtime lecture that's it and uh, no money so that's a hard it's a hard market just because and it's 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 true they don't have Mm -hmm. they're struggling at the moment, yeah. in the current financial climate, they don't, they don't have any spare. No, but I mean, I think in some ways, the fact that we've captured quite a lot now and we've tested different methodologies and we're developing the thinking quite seriously and because other things are happening. So I've seen something recently, and we've been saying this for a long time, you know, it would be great if London was the most accessible city in the world and tackled this and approached this in a, you know, in a fantastic way. And the government's just... I've seen a paper recently that they are looking at the UK being the most accessible tourist destination in the world. So it's those things will help, I think, make sure that... Because we've got, we've got the theory, we've got the practical experience to help other people try and achieve... Um, to achieve those things. And it's, you know, 2025 isn't that far away, really. Um, and an awful lot needs to happen. But um, I think... The role of this Paralympic uh, in London, right, had a huge role or a huge impact here. I have feeling, Oleg. It was massive worldwide. Yeah. I think it had a platform worldwide. Mm. I mean, the media, for example, in the UK, um, went into shock and meltdown because they didn't realise it was going to be so. Um, well, that the public were going to be so interested in disabled people being part of everything. And that was quite interesting because they weren't prepared. They suddenly had to find disabled people. Yeah, they suddenly had to find disabled people that could present, that could be on shows, that could be part of the infrastructure of the BBC. I mean, they've been doing it for a while, but they hadn't seriously done it. And they were taken a little bit by surprise. And I think the public began to enjoy some of of the disability programming more than they did of of the other programming. And that was a really good switch. but there'd been an awful lot of work that happened before 2012 to change attitudes. Um, and I think sometimes that's sometimes forgotten. Um, and I, when we work in other countries, we say, you know, this, this has been going on for an awful long time prior to 2012. And that just became a fantastic catalyst and pinnacle because you had that stage, that worldwide platform to actually say, we need to think differently about this. Well, it's kind of ironic that it's the Olympics. They kind of rely on, on, on a norm, right? There was this case of this woman yeah. who had too much testosterone, so she's she can't like she can run as a woman because she was too good. And I think this raised the whole question of like mm. how to deal with the Olympics and like categorizing people and yes, yeah, yeah this whole thing of like using what's it called. Yeah, prosthetic, you know. Yeah, yeah. and then runners can be faster even, so it's like techno-doping. One of the things that comes up a lot, as you probably know, around disability is that if you're disabled, especially if you're visibly disabled, you can can either be kind of a cyborg and kind of superhuman or you're like pitiful and kind of, you know, worthless. 
uh, and yeah, don't you know, not don't know anything about anything, and and those stereotypes are incredibly powerful. They're still, you know, they're in everyday talk. They are the way people talk, and you know, mm. that's uh, my experience as somebody who who's non-disabled, working a lot with disabled artists and working into these spaces is how much those stereotypes hold uh, just kind of people's normal way of talking and one of the things we do is is challenge that as often as possible and again it's this thing about starting from difference so to give an example one of the artists that we work with David Dixon he has a prosthetic leg and he does a project which he's done two or three times now called Alterator which is about the idea that rather than seeing him as either seeing him as either superhuman or you know sort of a sad case um, that it's just difference is just interesting for its own right so it's about that and he gets people to alter their bodies in 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 random ways and then draw differently so i mean you draw differently because you've altered your body and look at the kind of uh, creativity and the uh, enthusiasm that comes out of those pieces of work and it's a really uh, it's a really lovely project and I think you should talk about your character scenario too I think that one works really well yeah I, to give an example it is about this everyday thing you know getting to the shops catching the train the bus the you know walking around the corner going to the pub you know going out clubbing doing all these things that everybody else does really and it was through thinking about bodies, wasn't it, in a different way. And we started trying different techniques. And I'd just been developing training. It was working in Brazil, really, for the Cultural Olympiad out there. But it was trying to get... Um, it was museum moderators, really, and people that work in museums to think how disabled people coming into the museum environment might work in different ways. Um, so I started to look at how they... Uh, as a training exercise, really, about them being different characters... And those characters, not necessarily being disabled people, but being somebody that was carrying very heavy shopping, somebody walking through the building incredibly slowly, people moving very fast, people hopping, people sliding along the floor. And then it was about what was that, exp- what was that experience like? Um, and the one that seems to work really well is people moving through the building very slowly. So people start to actually engage with the space a lot more they begin to understand what's not working in that space. They begin to understand that you might be left out from the group because you can't move as fast as everybody else. So it, it just starts a whole new conversation. But it also has some positives in it too. I think what's really yeah, lovely about yeah. those exercises is people say they really loved just doing things much more reflecting slowly and, and reflecting. Yeah. And so they had this, everybody through these different exercises yeah. had this really interesting mixture. Well, it was a, a, a jump, wasn't it, from thinking how these things don't work to thinking actually I rather than rushing through the space um, I've begun to see that it you know that the textures or the smells or the environment there's things that are really interesting here observing other people's quite interesting or there are places to sit down that may have not been designed into the building but actually we could design more in quite interesting ways to make the building more um, better for everybody really so that's been, yeah, it's been really great, hasn't it, to see that. So we've developed those different characters more and more, and I think we, we will continue yeah, to do that. Yeah, we've used that in different ways. Mm. And again, I, you know, I, just to reiterate that point about, because it's very easy for people just, and 
to want to put disabled people in these different functional categories. It's like, this is what you need if you use a yeah. wheelchair, or this is what you need if you're blind, or this is what you need if you're autistic. And by doing these kinds of activities, these kind of character scenarios, you're not performing any of those, you're not performing a category, mm. but you're performing a set of, a way of being in the world which is, mm. um, connects to a whole range of, poss- of impairments and connects to um, the enjoyment of difference. Really. It also seems to connect to the individual, doesn't it? Because suddenly they say, ah, right, I really begin to understand this now. Um, and they seem to just approach this idea of the whole space in a very different way. And it becomes something they can connect to, yeah. not a. It's almost because it is embodied. Thing. It's like you, yes, you, do, yeah. you do it in an embodied yeah. way, so you yeah. remember it in an embodied yeah. way, not, not I, like an intellectual. And I, I was quite, um, and I wrote a little bit about it. But at um, at the University of Westminster, um, I you know, tried it probably about the third time. I tried it and with the students, and we I did it slightly differently, and um, and they quite went into shock after doing it and coming back and reflecting and it was really interesting to see such a huge change from not having thought about this to within 20-25 minutes beginning to um, you could see they could very quickly start to think how they were going to design things in a different way and I just thought it doesn't doesn't take a lot I mean it's taken a lot of time to develop it hasn't it (laughs) Um, but actually when you start to have those conversations and you try things out you can get people to stop doing this obsessive thing, can't you, about the the myths or the characteristics of an impairment and how that might, because of all the things you've been told, you can begin to just throw that out the window, really, and start thinking very differently about it. Thank you very much. Yeah. Is that all right? <laughs> oh, maybe I have one question we didn't ask. It was more about references or model or people that inspired you or... The person who I'm most impressed with is <laughs> Zoe Partington. Because when, what was really fantastic for me, having been interested in thinking about how we might think about access and inclusion differently in architecture, is it seemed really hard. Like with feminism, when you're talking about gender, you know, there are women around, you can do that, there's women in practice. With disability, disabled people, although there are lots of disabled people in architectural practice and education, uh, they're isolated They often hide it because it affects the possibility of work or the possibility of study. So this notion, which came entirely to me from Zoe, from other work that she's been doing, about working with disabled artists, it was was out of work that you'd already been developing, just seemed like a really inventive way forward. It just seemed like such a rich way to go because you had this, it's all our early discussions, you had this equivalence of creativity. You were having discussions which were as much about art practice as they were and architectural practice as they were about disability. You, you suddenly shifted the kind of where the discussion was had. So for me, that's vital. Yeah. I think working in places like the Joint Mobility Unit which was a, a charitable organisation that looked at accessibility. Um, and Peter Barker was um, in charge of that unit, was a blind... Um, he came from the construction industry, Peter. Mm. So he had a very methodical way and did do guidance. And I absolutely loved working with him, and he did make me think about things in a very different way. But I was still quite frustrated with how things still didn't seem to shift enough. And then I met quite a lot of very radical disabled artists 
who definitely thought very differently about it all. And people like Barbara Lissiki, uh, people like Alan Holdsworth, and um, people like Liz Crow, mm-hmm. seeing their practice and the way that they worked really made me sharpen up, I think, and address some of the mistakes that I was definitely making to really start to, um, I don't know, to start to observe and look at what, it's quite fascinating, isn't it, what doesn't work? And I think as a disabled artist, you start to, well, that's your practice, is about what doesn't work, and you can look at that and create things from it. And I just think it's that whole combination, isn't it, of being able to talk to people. I mean, I was talk to Joss as well, because I had a sort of history of architecture background, but I didn't necessarily understand the whole spatial issue of people moving through the spaces and how, that, how architects were taught, I suppose. So that was great as well, because that made me be able to think about my practice, think about artist practice, and then think about how we might engage with architects and designers in very different ways. The way I was talking wasn't... It wasn't about moaning about a space. It was about having a discussion and a discourse, wasn't it, really, yeah, about those yeah. spaces. And having a creative way forward, too, I think, yeah. not just saying yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah, and realising the strength in all parties, really, to when you've talked about that, about collaborating, that that is um, how you get things to move, really. But, I mean, you know, it's still hard work because people yeah. don't want to hear it often. Yeah. Have to scream. Yeah, yeah, and you have to find techniques for oh, yeah. things. Mm. Um, you know, I get to all sorts of things. You know, they're supporting some disability initiative. And then you sort of look around the room and you think, there's no disabled people in here. Yeah. Or they've got a, they haven't even got a, you know, they've got steps into the auditorium. Yeah. Yeah. They really haven't thought this through. Yeah. Once you start noticing that stuff, you can't yeah. unnotice it. Yeah. And that's the important thing, is to start noticing it. Yeah. How no many spaces you go into that are not even basically yeah. acceptable, accessible. You know, and I think alone. Amy Hamray was fantastic, wasn't it? Because she just naturally audio-describes every image she puts up when she's yeah. doing a talk. Um, so many people don't do that. They have no awareness, do they, that other people in the room might not be able to see what's on the screen. And I think you know, little things like... If modules were, I don't know, for teachers or lectures, if all those things were built into stuff, yeah. then um, people wouldn't be excluded quite so much. And I do, I mean, I also, just because you were mentioning Amy Hamray, I think that one of the things that's been great is that we've been able to bring her here from the States yes, and that yeah. there is, I've mentioned disability studies several times, and I do think there's fantastic work going on in that subject area that doesn't penetrate into our... I mean stuff around gender and race and sexuality does little bits of it it depends where you study and what you're interested in but there are there's literature on that that's within architecture as a discipline you can read it particularly around gender there's a whole history of that there's stuff around race there's less of it that's very specifically about architecture um but disability studies which has been talking about architecture for years through people like Amy Hamray or, well, or somebody like Liz Crow, who was writing about feminism and disability in the 1980s, you know, has been around a very long time and very, very knowledgeable and very creative in this area. Um, there are, there's, there's texts out there, there's stuff out there, which I've found, because I do a lot of the, I do that kind of writing them all. I'm kind of, my role is to influence at the academic end and, and Zoe's experience is very much and knowledge is very much at... Uh, uh, in terms of kind of direct expertise into practice and into, into yeah. kind of policy. Um, but I have found people like Amy Hamray, like Alison Kafer, who I mentioned, like Jay Domage, like Tanya Tuskovsky. There's a whole gang of them. And, and a disability activist like the Disability Visibility Project, who uh, I've mentioned before and who have a, 
you know, their whole campaign at the moment is called Access is Love. It's a really different way of thinking about access. It's about how you, everybody has a responsibility to make spaces more accessible and it's around care and collaboration. And it's beautiful. So there's, there's stuff there which I think would be very energising for architecture as a discipline. Mm-hmm. And, and I, don't quite, I don't quite see why it seems so hard. You know, Zoe was talking about how hard it is to actually change attitudes, but it's also incredibly hard to get that, those kinds of references just as part of the everyday life of architecture schools and practice, and they should be. They're fantastic. This was the F Podcast, and we are the Femart Collective.